1: I'm Marcus Aurelius Anderson, and my guest today truly embodies that phrase. Ryan Crownholm is a serial founder and entrepreneur, mentor, investor, and U.S. Army veteran. He's the president and founder of Crown Capital Adventures, Inc., DirtMatch.com, and MySitePlan.com. His book called The Hustle Trap, which we're going to talk a lot about, is incredible, and I actually had the honor of seeing him speak in person in Los Angeles at the historic Orpheum Theater, so he comes up and he tells an incredible story that's based on not just adversity but learning to adapt and being stronger from it. And he and I connected the night before. We're going to stay connected from here on out. I think so. Thank you so much for being here today, Ryan. I can't thank you enough.
2: Man, I'm so excited that we met. Yeah, it was cool. It's it's hard to meet people like yourself out there in the world. So well, it's you know, hard to meet people like you. Yeah, I, yeah, I have to pick them up out from Tulsa, Oklahoma, or wherever I can find them. So,
1: <laughs> well, I'll be in California again at some point, so we'll figure right. something out. Or when you're okay, so. when you're out speaking in Arizona or wherever, maybe we can link up. So, yeah, for sure, figure it out. So, you came out, and when you gave your keynote, first of all, you were poised, you were collected, you stood in one spot, you didn't move around like a a tiger in a cage that was nervous, and you spoke very much from the heart, but it also had this powerful knowledge based on not just being a veteran, but also understanding how to pivot, how to lead, how to find opportunity in adversity. And you're not the guy that's just talking about it. You're not the guy that's just regurgitating what everybody else says. When I first saw you across the room, as a matter of fact, I thought you were Tom No, oh. <laughs> have, have you ever heard that? Have you, have you had that before?
2: I, no, but I have a very standard look, so it's not surprising.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a compliment. <laughs> you were like lean, athletic, and I, I saw you and I was like, just from the side, I was like, is that Tom? And then... He came over and I was like, well, it's not Tom, but he's still a pretty good looking
2: pretty <laughs> good, good looking guy. So I'll talk to <laughs> you. Oh man, you're making <laughs> me blush at eight o'clock in the morning.
1: <laughs> you know how veterans are. So but so we got together, we sat down, we we had some food, and then when I heard you speak and I saw the way that you were speaking, like I said, it was it was refreshing to to hear that kind of message. So tell us a little bit about why did you join the military? And then we will see how that unfolds and unpacks into not just the hustle trap but what you're doing today and how you're able to do it at such a high level with a, a very open schedule to do with as you please.
2: Yeah, sure. I, uh, military, you know, I was, after high school, I was sort of a drifter, I guess. I, like, went to San Diego, you know, to just live there and hang out on the beach and play a lot of chess and, like, worked in restaurants and it, there was, uh, there just wasn't a direction. You know, I'd never had any ambitions to go to college Or at least I didn't have the finances to. And so I didn't know what I want to do. So I thought, well, maybe if I could just take a few years and just change things up. And so I talked to a recruiter and I said, Hey, you know, what are my options? And, you know, I said, well, can I get a guaranteed duty station in Europe? i would just like leave the country for a few years. So sure. So they signed me up and off I went to Germany and I I landed in Germany. And as soon as I got off the planes, the soldiers were going off to Bosnia and they're like, welcome to Germany. See you in Bosnia, which is, you know, sort of what was going on back then. But it was, it was what, it was a thing that I needed. Uh, I was a terrible student when I was younger, but when I, when I got to um to military I started taking college classes there it turned out I was actually like uh, maybe of average intelligence and not like below and so that gave me the confidence so when I got out I ended up you know uh, using my college fund and and I ended up getting a you know a degree in economics and business Administration so it worked out well so it was sort of uh it was joined the military to find direction and then also to get some finances for college and to, and so it worked
1: yeah. And that was probably your first experience with high-level leadership, or perhaps leadership that we don't want to reproduce in our businesses.
2: Definitely, I run my businesses now the opposite of the way we ran. We're in the military, so the military is very hierarchical. I run a very flat organization, and that just empowers people at every level to you know to be accountable for their own actions. No middle managers. No st- staff sergeants and command sergeant majors and privates and specialists, you know, like that dynamic drove me crazy. And so,
1: so yeah, I, but I learned a lot. Yeah. And again, we can talk about veterans, right? So lots of times if we can take what's positive that we learn from the military, either the self-starter mentality, the ability to be motivated when there's no motivation, the ability to figure things out under pressure. If we take those things and then say, okay, now I'm the one that gets to lead. I'm the one that gets to see what's the objective, what's the mission. Now we can have this ownership, so to speak, but also agency in the direction that we go, and that's when we can start finding opportunity, especially when we've been in the military, going to the civilian sector, and we see people that perhaps don't have that sort of experience or they're not used to pressure or deadlines or something that has to be done in this moment. The,
2: those were a lot of words. I just learned how to shut up. Um, you know, it was like <laughs> under under leadership who I didn't believe in, or you know, I'm a very, I'm a systems person. I'm an, I'm about efficiency, I'm about getting jobs done as quickly and as, as well as I possibly can. And the military to me felt like it was the opposite. So I spent a lot of time getting getting yelled at and doing push-ups and um Eventually, I learned how to just say whoa, and then just do what I was supposed to do. And and as I went into the you know the outside world, it turns out that's pretty good. Especially when you're dealing with, with customers of a, a variety type, you know, different types of customers, and sort of being like, you know, what you say doesn't matter. It's just the fact that I do the job right, it gets done on time, and that we stand by the contract. And we you pay me the money, and you know, it was fine. And instead of being like, I think the ego before would have been. Uh, a lot more pushback of like, no, this is the way it's done. Or like, you know, like in the army, you learn when to speak and when
1: not to speak. And that, that was helpful. It It is. And we also learned in the military that there's a efficient and inefficient. Mm-hmm. You and I understand that there's efficient and inefficient, and then there's short-term and there's long-term. So if you're speaking to somebody in your business and you're being direct and the short-term is like, get it done, execute. It's like, okay, that may work right now, but we may win this battle, but we lose the war long-term because that person doesn't feel valued. They don't feel listened to. They don't feel like you've given them any kind of responsibility or respect, but you're from this place where you had to give your men and women the ability to step up. So can you tell us about the incident that kind of forced you to let go of some of those things and how that eventually turned into something that helped you excel exponentially?
2: Yeah, so it's interesting when I when I came out of the military. You know, I got out in 1999. It was a bit of a rough landing. I had nothing. I had I'd saved up those uh, those bonds. You, know, you buy a hundred dollar bond or whatever, and so I had you know three thousand dollars worth of them. So I went out and I bought this beat up old Honda Accord, 1984, been through a hailstorm, covered in rust. Parents said, "Hey, you can come stay with us until you get back on your feet." Great. Moved into their house. Two weeks later, burned to the ground. Uh, stayed in a hotel for a little while and then eventually ended up sleeping on friends' couches and in my car. I'm like, oh man, Mike's command sergeant major had pulled me aside when I was getting out of the military. He said, Ground home, you can make a good career in this in the military, but there's nothing for you in the civilian world. And I told him, I said, Well, I'll tell you what, when I get out or when you get out, look me up, I'll give you a job. And, and then I did some push-ups. <laughs> But i, but I did, you know, I you know I was a air defense, so fourteen Sierra, uh, stinger missiles, I uh, shot down airplanes. And so when I came out of the military and started filling out job applications, and I'm like, What's your, you know, core skill set? I'm like, well, I can shoot down airplanes, and that wasn't in very high demand at the time, at least not for any like, you know, non-terrorist type organizations. <laughs> right. So, I, what I did have is manual labor. I was a really strong kid, and so got a job as a bouncer at a, at a bar and started bartending, and then eventually started what was a hauling company loading stuff into into the trailer of my truck and taking it to the dumps but that sort of over time turned into like okay well now i can get a dump truck and then the dump trucks got bigger and then i was like hey maybe i can load it with a bobcat and then bobcats got bigger and then hey excavator and then so before you know it i've got dumpsters and roll-offs and uh excavators and uh a lot of equipment so i had about an acre, a little about an acre of uh of equipment all over and so then in 2007 after 7 years of doing this i'd grown what was a you know multi million dollar demolition company it was doing very well but i was very much leading from the front much like i learned in the military was like go out in the field work with the guys like keep them motivated swing sledgehammers and that was really good for going from 0 to 1 for getting off the ground it was it was something i had to do but what i didn't realize is that i was stuck my growth was being thwarted because of it Until one day, I got lucky enough to get run over by one of my own trucks. One of uh, I was driving a one-ton dually crew cab, and I was pulling a 10,000-pound trailer. I pulled up on a job site, a little bit of a sloped road. Uh, had some jacks on the back of the trailer that were supposed to make it so it wouldn't teeter, but one of the jacks was missing. My guy went, tried to unload the bobcat. Jack snapped. Truck came rolling down the hill. I looked up the hill and was like, "Uh uh-oh. And I tried to get out of the way, couldn't do it. And I just fell directly in front of that truck, and so I it it, it, it was pretty brutal. Uh, you know, some bones crunching, twisting, turning. Truck's pretty low to the ground. Hits another car. Jackknifes in the road and i'm able to pull myself out after all this and i you know I'm, it's a bloody mess i mean i'm looking at my femur snapped in half and sticking out of my jeans and i you know i can't, I can't breathe because my my ribs were broken and they were punctured, in my lungs my shoulder was shattered i mean i was i was broken uh but i got lucky enough to get a ambulance there very quick within you know less than 10 minutes and you know, it was at a trauma center within probably 15 or 20 minutes after that and um And so went through 12 hours of trauma surgery, lots of, you know, pins and rods and screws and, you know, all that stuff that they got to do to try to put you back together. And so uh, that was July 3rd, 2007, you know, July 4th, I wake up in a hospital bed and I'm like, okay, you know, I can't run my company anymore. So what's going to happen? You know? And so I get, you know, talk to my guys and I say, hey guys, this is, you know, we're in a pretty bad space. And they're like, I got you. Don't worry about it. So I'm like, hmm. Yeah, like you guys can do this without me. Come on, guys. Well, they, they were right. They had me. I had I turned out i had done a pretty good job of hiring. And uh I had some really exceptional people that worked for me. But there so that was sort of get through the first few weeks of sort of what would be like a triaging the company where I'm not there anymore. But you got to remember, before I was driving trucks, I was driving tractors. I was doing manual labor, I was pulling permits, I was doing sales, I was drawing my my plans. I was I mean I probably had a dozen different jobs and so inevitably I couldn't do a lot of those things and so I had to really figure out who was going to do them, what people I was going to need, what systems I was going to need. You know, it was 2007 and so the economy was starting to really dip off. And so I could, didn't have a, a huge war chest of capital to go out and hire a bunch of people to do it for me. So I just had to do it the smart way. I had to look for different means of revenue. Uh, I had to look for ways to save money. And so, you know, I, I, you know, in my talk, I talked about, you know, I was, as I'm doing these things and I'm sitting you know at, behind a computer for the first time ever and not buying a truck. And I'm like, well, you know, what's uh what does our expenses look like? So I'm going through a and and I'm looking at our, like our recycling fees. Are going through the roof, thousands of dollars a month. And I'm like, what is this? And I see there's like uh, electronics and appliances. The dump fee- fees now they're charging for these things. And I'm like, well, how are they charging for it? I thought I thought they could make money off of these things. So I do a little bit of research. I go, oh, they can make money. You just need a state license. And so I went to you know the state of California and said, hey, the landfills, they all have this license where they're they're able to recycle the stuff and make money. And I want that one. And they went okay so what i'm like <laughs> so they told me they told me no and i and so eventually i kept you know kept pushing it as i do because i'm a little bit persistent and eventually got the license and uh started accepting those things at our own facility and we started you know, actually turning this into a revenue source and so we took what was an expense turned it into revenues and eventually opened a second center and then started doing recycling events all over the bay area uh you know we also because the housing market was collapsing there was a lot of foreclosures going on so i got on the phone which was something I couldn't do when I was in the field, too much jackhammering in the background. And I start calling banks and realtors with foreclosures. And I say, hey, what do you guys do with those foreclosures? We can fix them up. I got a bunch of guys looking for work. And so I just tell them we can, you know, we can weed whack them. We can strap the water heaters, put up smoke detectors. We can board up buildings. And, all, you know, we got busy. So we went to work. Um, You know, I did a Google AdWords campaign. I said, well, I've got all these excavators and trucks and everything that we used to do underground construction and demolition, all this stuff that was tied to the housing market. And this was dipping off. And so I give a list of 50 different things to my adwords guys. And I'm saying, well, let's run a campaign and see what takes off. And we started to see swimming pool removal. And so we go, okay. Let's let's check that check that out. And so I made some flyers, swimming pool removal specialist. I I made a website, I hate my swimming pool.com. And I, you know, I had like uh <laughs> I, I had the license plate pool hater on my on my pickup truck. And <laughs> so I just branded myself as the authority in pool removal. I started a blog and that blog had got international attention. So people from all over the world were were oh. emailing me about the process. I hired a geotech soils engineer. So I really I went about it to make sure that I was gonna do it hundred percent the right way. Mm. Um, and so within a few years, we were taking out. 300 swimming pools a year. And this was, you know, very high margin work. And so these were all the things that I was able to see while I was on the outside of my business. Whereas when I was on the inside of my business, I was just like, I like the economy is coming down. We need to do more work and we need to do it faster and harder. And I was working myself into the ground. And so this was a two year transformation for me of, you know, two years of surgeries where I had another six surgeries, putting me back together and running my business from a different perspective. And it was completely life altering. And I, you know, even today, I had the systems that I created within that because I sold that business seven years later, 2014, I sold that business and I started two more businesses that were based off of systems that I created within that business. Mm. And so, um, so that was sort of the, you know, the, the culmination of my, my story arc of where I probably would have been sitting here if I didn't get run over talking about a company that I had that, you know, because of the economy in 2007, the great global collapse, I went out of business and that's my excuse. And so, you know, and then I went on and I got a job at McDonald's and I've been there ever since. And, you know, (laughs) but I didn't, you know, I didn't have time for excuses. You know, it was, it was, uh, it was go time.
1: Yeah. You didn't have the luxury of sitting back. And it's this whole adapt or die mentality that we have to have as entrepreneurs. It's like, if I don't see it, if I don't feel this niche, somebody else will. And they're not any better than I am. They're not any smarter than I am. They're often just, like you said, able to step out for a second and look around maybe just one more time than I was able to do. And that's because, like you said, your head was down getting it done.
2: Yeah, well, you know, I had to look at, and this is what we all have to do, is what are the controllables? You know, and we we did this in the military too. It's like, there are things that are completely outside of my control. I don't have time to think about those. Here are the things that are within my control. I have a computer sitting in front of me. What does this thing do? What can I do with it? You know, I have a bunch of guys that are really good. I've got a bunch of equipment that can go to work. And then there was a lot of things I couldn't do because my body was broken. And so um, I think that, that the strength that showed through for me was exactly that, was, okay, let's let's hit the controllables.
1: And I love that too, because when we were speaking, I think we were having dinner after we spoke, you were saying how we were both discussing how physicality is very much a part of us. I've seen you move. I've seen you moving around. You, you are... In great shape and you made a comment that you and i both have this same idea which is if i just stay ready i don't have to get ready so for you like staying very physically active doing hundreds of pull-ups push-ups you know squats whatever it is a day to keep you going that's very much that that foundation of everything that you build on even if it was at one time broken
2: yeah yeah well also the fact that if i if i don't do those things i'm a cripple like i you know i stay very strong and as a result you know i i my body functions, but if I let myself go and I put on some weight, I, I'm, you know, I'm in a pretty bad way. And so I'm trying not to be a crippled old man. Uh, that's why I work, I work out, you know, that it's shifted. Mm-hmm. You know, I grew up, I was, like I said before, and I got in the military as a big kid. I used to throw around a lot of weights of bouncer, you know, and like I was took a lot of pride in that. And, but it was always just about being a big kid, you know, it yes. wasn't about, about health. And so now everything is like, when I do something, I say, well, am I willing to do this every day for the rest of my life? Yeah, I got a pull-up bar in my yard, I you know, knock out, you know, maybe a hundred pull-ups a day, at least a hundred push-ups a day, and it's just things that I'm willing to do for the rest of my life. And you know, I go on my walks. Um, and so that that's been it made a huge difference to me. You know, it's all about consistency and discipline. And um, when you can be consistent and disciplined even at 15 or 20 minutes a day, it's far better than every three years being like, oh man, I gotta lose 20 pounds. You know, like that's that is not the life that I'm
1: that I'm living. And you were also doing Tough Mudders and other things like that to give you that additional kind of competitive push.
2: I I do some of that stuff occasionally. Yeah, just this, it, those are like the fun things. But to be honest, the last Tough Mudder that I did, I ended up... uh this is crazy i was doing a rope climb and as i was climbing up this uh this bicep fell off it curled up in a ball down here It just ripped it just ripped it, it, the tendon came disconnected and it came it, so i had a headband on so i took my headband off i tied my bicep back and this happened at like mile seven and it was oh, a 13 mile tough I was like tired back in place and I finished it, <laughs> and then oh and then the next day I went in and had surgery to have it all you know put back into place. But um, wow. that was funny because I was at the time I was with the whole team from Pottery Barn, and they were giving the signal, medic, medic, like you know crossing their arms, and yep. I'm saying, God, shut up, <laughs> they're going to make me quit, they're going to DQ me, <laughs> shut up. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, I've avoided tough matters since then.
1: But that's, that's that military kind of mentality. is like, I'm already hurt. I'm already injured. I'm already out here. I'm already sweaty. I'm literally halfway through. Why would I stop now? Like, I can finish yeah. this thing. Yeah, and, right. and you did. Of course, you said your wife. She's like, what? What was going on? <laughs> I saw her at the halfway point. She
2: was yeah. at the very top. It was at like Heavenly or Slaw Valley or something. And she's at the halfway point. And she's like, hey, how how's it going? What's going on with your arm? I'm like, don't worry about it. I got this. <laughs> I <laughs> One
1: arm. <laughs> But that's where the teamwork comes in too, right? Because they help you over the rest of the obstacles. Mm -hmm. So entrepreneurship, social media makes it very sexy, makes it very exotic, makes it very enticing. What is the biggest misconception about being a serial entrepreneur that you could tell people?
2: Well, you know, lately, uh, entrepreneurship, I think that people try to make it out as if it's easy. There's thousands of guys on the internet telling you, like, take these seven easy steps to a million dollars. And it's not. And entrepreneurship can be easy but not at first it's much like a, you know, I, I love to go hiking. I throw on my backpack. I go on a 10 mile hike. I throw on a 50 pound sack and uh, the first mile is crowded. The second mile is less. So the third mile is less. By the time you're five or six miles, it's like you and it's like me and Marcus, right? It's like everybody else has fallen away. Yeah. And so, um, you know, that's very true for entrepreneurship. You know, a lot of people try to make this impression that they have can somehow on that first mile can have the trail to themselves. You can't, that's, the hard work needs to put in the beginning. I call it front loading. Mm-hmm. When I look at a business idea, I'm usually saying, okay, I don't just say, okay, well, let's just test this out. I say, I'm going to put 200 hours of my time into this to see if it's viable. And I know that after 200 hours, maybe I can get an MVP together. And I'm going to say, now I need another thousand hours before I can say whether or not this is going to be a, a successful business. You know, so there's a, a huge amount of time. Now, some there's some shortcuts if you have some capital and you can raise people and you, you know, you, you can, leverage different softwares that are you know a little bit more expensive and so I'm, I'm able to iterate a little faster now that i'm capitalized but uh but that's always the approach that i've taken you know, a lot of people go and they start a business and they're immediately like oh who's the competition oh there's already a lot of other people doing that like no you look at the competition and you go okay what are their weaknesses whereas because uh, you know that's that's just market validation right you go okay cool now how am i going to run these companies over what do
1: i have that they don't and then you leverage the shit out of it and run them over yeah, you quadruple down on what you can do differently, the the thing that you can give that other people can't. And you and I understand also, when we get to a certain point and we're able to use money to our advantage, sometimes if we're not careful with exactly where every penny is going, we allow that to become this, um, it makes us comfortable and we're like, oh, this is doing the work for me. But when you're first beginning, especially when you're front load, like you don't have that luxury, but it makes everything that much more efficient, right? Yeah, yeah,
2: it's uh, yeah. In the beginning, there's there's no replacement for you when creating the systems. You know, when creating what the company is going to be and creating the roles and the standard operating procedures, all that upfront work to make sure that what you are building is systematized so that it grows in your reflection moving forward. Uh, because running like crazy and then trying to bring structure in later on down the road is hard.
1: And so, if you can do it from the very beginning. Um, you can build a, a pretty amazing business. And like you said, this idea of saying, I'm going to put 200 hours into this. Like you said, this is not a part-time job. This is not, you know, a side hustle. Like this is what you're monogamous to this thing to get it where it needs to be. And then, like you said, within 200 hours, you know, actually probably within a hundred hours, you're pretty sure of, of what, like this is actually worth more time and more investment, or maybe it's not. It depends, depending on
2: how, how intimate you are with the space. But I, I found that 200 hours, which is, you know, maybe you're doing 20 hours a week for 10 weeks. So 10 is. weeks of like starting validation, putting ideas together, maybe you have a website, you're, you're putting it together, you're changing things out, you're making phone calls, you're doing market research. And then, you know, so let's say at 100 hours, you're like, all right, I think that we're on to something, at least you can, at that point, say whether um, you want to quit. Or keep going forward, but I,
1: but I found 200 hours is the is the number to sort of get your at least your first sale. And that's beautiful because that's essentially, like you said, two weeks. That's two and a half months. We can all put enough of that time in, or even people that have a, a full time nine to five and they're like, I want to do a side hustle. It's like, man, you can absolutely do it, but you have to have that commitment. You can't just do it when it's convenient or do it when you see a Gary Vee clip or do it whenever it feels like there's you know an opportunity. It's like We have to go out and create the opportunity and then it presents itself as we're out there doing the work. Yeah, 100%. And with your systems, and and you talk about this in The Hustle Trap, but tell me about what do you see people doing that are either using systems, but they're using them ineffectively or people that think, well, I don't have time to create systems right now.
2: Yeah, so I'd like to say busyness is a sign of laziness. A lot of entrepreneurs are extremely busy because that feels good. It's like, well, I'm busy, so I must be getting a lot done. So for example, you might spend an hour every day working on something that's repetitive. Whereas if you created a system around that thing, which might take you five or 10 hours to create a really rock solid system and then to hand it off to someone else or to, or to let it automate itself. So people just don't want to put in the five or 10 hours to save themselves an hour a day. So that's what I do. I look at, it, well, okay. I mean, if I have something I'm doing five minutes a day. I'm willing to spend five hours to get rid of that. I don't want to have anything to do on any day. So when I come into work, I can just say, you know, I'm working on all of the things in my business that are the next 10x. That's all of my attention. And so I have no interest in dealing with customer service or you know, this is all taken care of through the systems. Customers are happy. I've aligned their what they want with my employees and with my profit margin. So we've 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 created alignment feedback loops. All that stuff is going to happen. And so, um, and I talk a lot about this
1: in The Hustle Trap as well, about how I, I do this, mostly through people and systems. And that's very much, again, about the idea of efficient or inefficient, if it works or if it doesn't work, but also, again, long term. So it, like you're saying, it's almost like teaching a, a guy to, to use the jackhammer. You you front load that time initially, but when you teach him correctly, now you can step back and now you're not in the field. So as you were saying, people are like, well, I'll just do it myself because it's, I, I can do it faster but they're not helping this person learn or they're not giving them the opportunity to take ownership to be able to step into that role, which again, frees us up to be able to do it later. So that that micromanagement, I don't know if it's something they do intentionally because of ego or they do it because they don't have the ability to step up and out and say, this isn't really helping me long-term because as you were saying, you can keep doing that for years, but it's not going to allow you to do the other things that only you can do.
2: Yeah, yeah. So I think it was, uh, what was it? Thomas Jefferson, Abraham Lincoln. I said, that, you know, if I've given five hours cut down a tree, I'll spend the first four hours sharpening my axe.
1: Yeah, Abraham
2: uh, yeah, Abe yeah. Lincoln. Yeah, that's you know, that's sort of the idea is like you got to put in the work <laughs> to be more efficient. You have to th- be thoughtful about the way you run through you know business and, and through life as well. You know, entrepreneurship for me is not just about business i'm entrepreneurial in every part of my life i was even in my homeschool my son you know because i was looking at what was going on in the in the school system and just saying well this is this isn't serving him you know they're trying to teach to the middle he's staring at the ceiling he's bored he's you know so i'm putting him in a system that i've opted out of where i've said i'm not going to be a part of the system i'm going to create my own life And then I, you know, it felt like almost a hypocrite that I'm putting my son in the public school system in a system that's broken. And so I'm saying, you know, forget it. We'll pull you out and we'll start doing things our own way. And he's, you know, in seventh grade now. And he could, I mean, he could pass a GED. He could graduate from high school if he wanted to. He's brilliant. But that wouldn't have happened otherwise. And so, you know, I think about that in finances. I think about it in real estate. I think, I mean, entrepreneurship is spread across every part of my
1: life. It's just the way to think yeah it's it's basically your your operating system it's almost like your philosophy because it's and to me a uh, philosophy is only useful as it is pragmatic so we have a lot of people that will embrace dogma or a mentality because it has these these names fixated to it but for you you're like Again, is this going to be something that that helps me long term? Is this going to make my my boy better? Like you're giving him a real world MBA right now as he grows up in a very real world situation. So that's yeah, that's- I, I bring him to work with me. I bring him to
2: business meetings. He's so he's on another level. You know, you know. Not only do we homeschool him, but we also sort of road school him. So we would do things like. We would learn about geothermal energy and viking culture and then we'd go to iceland for three weeks and we'd connect the dots we'd go to hamilton wow. so we would learned about the the declaration of the planets and we would go and like look at the documents in, in in new york and dc and you know we've got i mean we did like three weeks in alaska we did you know three weeks in ecuador three weeks we went to you know spend three weeks in bogota like so we would just take him around the world and just give as we were you know it's sort of selfish i wanted to go to these places but I'm like <laughs> what frick? what curriculum can I build that we can study beforehand so that when we go there, he connects the dots. And so he's yes. like on, on another, on another level.
1: So very, very cool. And you also give him a very martial background as well, so that he understands how to protect himself. And that gives that confidence between jujitsu, wrestling, everything else, right?
2: Yeah. And he's, and he's very kind, kind, smart person, but, exactly. um, uh, but able you know, we all need to be able, you know, this just because we've moved into the digital world doesn't mean we don't need to to be able to
1: you know physically uh, defend the things that we love. That's absolutely it. And I also realized that when we have that capacity, it gives us that ability to have that client confidence, the way that we walk, the way that we treat others. The more strength that we have, the more that we can help others that are not as strong. So whether it be financially strong, we can help those in need, a person that falls down or a person that can't defend themselves. If we're strong, we have the capacity to protect them when they can't protect themselves. So that's, in my opinion, the stronger that we get, the more responsible we need to be with that strength. A hundred percent.
2: hundred percent. And they don't teach kids that
1: these days, you know, they put the focus on a lot of other things that I that I just simply don't value. Yeah. I'm glad that you stopped them like that. And then with the hustle trap, you and I were discussing that we were laughing because there's all this like team hashtag no sleep and all this stuff. And they're it's this badge of honor. They want to. I think they're more concerned about projecting to everybody else that they're busting their ass 24 seven, but you and I understand that that means they're not doing the right stuff. They're focusing on the wrong things or they're doing things that are not going to give them the return on investment that they're putting into it.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a fine line, you know, a, a lot of them fall into workaholism and, you know, workaholism is the other addiction that we don't talk about. You know, it's like they're, it's the one that we get really proud of people. It's like, you're doing good. You're working so hard. But a lot of people just aren't efficient. So I'm not. I'm not necessarily anti-hustle. I'm. I'm anti-wasting time. You know, you get someone like Elon Musk. He's. He's perfected this. He can run all these different businesses. He works 20 hours a day, but he's not focusing on the minutia. You know, he focuses on on the big level of things. And so I don't want to work like that. I. I want to spend you know a lot more time with my family. You know, I have a certain balance that's good for me, uh, which has changed throughout the years. You know, when I was younger, I'm 99% work, and now I want you know maybe. 20% work, you know? So uh it, I would say that the, the hustle that's required to get a business off the ground from zero to one uh is absolutely necessary. But at some point, it's going to start to work against you. And so to be very cognizant of that, of like where are, you know, once you start bringing on staff and you start bringing on the systems and you start thinking about what other things could I do if I was sitting at the thousand foot level Looking down on my business, what things would I see that I can't see from here? And it's amazing what you what you find. So, um, so I was just you know, tell people like it's not anti-hustle. If you want to be a workaholic hustler, fine. But don't spend your time, you know, making cold calls and paying payroll and uh creating advertisements and you know like these are things that are that you can hire people or you can train people to do um and so once you sort of set back and and you know but at the end of the day when entrepreneurs get bold like bored they get creative right and so if you set your business up to where you don't have anything to do anymore you're like "Hmm, okay i i'm really bored and then you start going maybe I should do like, look at this. I should look at that. And maybe I could branch out in this, like this new area of businesses new, like there's, that's where all the 10 X growth comes from. It comes from that curiosity.
1: But if you don't give yourself that space, you'll never find it. And it's like you said, once you give yourself that bandwidth, because you're already kind of operating on this level, all these other opportunities sort of come through where you have these ideas where you're like, huh, I haven't seen somebody combine these things. Oftentimes it's very much like this Venn diagram, like what you were discussing where okay, I have these guys that are great at demo, they're great at construction, but let's see what happens here. And then when you did the AdWords and you got the the pool component, that thing diagram became that that niche that you were able to own. That piece of the pie was all yours. Niche down when Christopher Lockett talks about it, he says, if you're the first one in that area, you very much own three quarter of that pie, irrespective of who comes in, that tries to undercut you, that tries to outwork you because you've already the, you're already the heir apparent.
2: Yep. Yep. And so that's the the case with both of my businesses. I was first there and there's been a lot of copycats and people have come behind me, but they'll never catch up because the systems I have set up, although I don't work a lot, I have forward motion in my businesses, hundreds of hours a day of forward motion that are happening on my behalf because I set systems for people to be able to do that for me. So it's not set it and forget it. It's set it up and manage it and create the metrics so that you know when your attention is needed to come in and fix
1: something. Yeah, and that's the other part of, like you said, being able to step up and out. I'm always asking, I ask two questions to the companies I work with. Like, first of all, how can we make this business model look and like antiquated by comparison within a year? What are we not doing? Or it's three years from now and the business has failed. What happened? Because now they can see, the end. Of- because it makes them look really, Starkly at the inefficiencies now, because it takes usually a year, two, three years before it becomes something that is so big that we can't yeah. choke it back. Right. That's right. Yeah, I'd say three years is
2: usually the breakout uh, for my businesses. Yeah, about three years, and that's because I I build very very durable businesses. Meaning I'm not you know blitz scaling where I'm you know basically paying a bunch of money to get a bunch of users to you know for vanity metrics to make investors want to put more money into my like this that whole game I've no interest. I build value and I build value and people see value in what I'm doing and they come and they tell their friends and I take care of them. And they're my employees. They bring their friends in the really good ones. And so we're just building this sort of long-term like this company in 10 years is going to be a behemoth. Um, But I'm not looking at an exit 18 months from the day I
1: start. I have no interest in that. Yeah. I think sometimes they put the cart before the horse and they're trying to figure out how to, Like you said, exit or how many times, like you said, with the vanity metrics trying to get PE to to come in and it's like, well, they're probably not looking at your, your best interest in the process either, right? Well, no. It's the venture capitalist is just about money. You know, they'll say,
2: "Well, we're really here. We, we're just in support of entrepreneurship, or they, you know, have these goals that they're trying to achieve, you know, in the environment or whatever." It's bullshit. They want money. They want—they want liquidity as fast as possible. And so, either to blitz scale you with vanity metrics to make you look attractive to take you public or to get acquired by somebody else. But what they don't want is a you know company that is just going to grow slowly over a long period of time um, because that's not attractive to them so my company is you know even if i'm growing at 40 percent a year and my cash flow is is going like crazy it's not something that VC wants because maybe my company makes a million a year in profits uh, and maybe it'll make 10 million 10 years down the road they're like oh that's not fast enough it's like okay <laughs> Yeah. So, and yeah, that's yeah. And that's the type of entrepreneur I am. You know, there are a lot of people out there that have taken this, you know, this approach of move fast, break things, raise a bunch of money, you know, spray and pray, capital all over the place, and sometimes they're successful. Um, I've been through enough economic downturns that I'm just uh, extremely fiscally responsible. I'm very, very careful with the way that I grow my companies. I use very little leverage. Uh, you know, when things do correct, you know, like now the economy is starting to come down. Um, you know, it's like one of my businesses right now. I, you know, it's very much tied to the housing market. We've seen a slowdown. And then also I um, I ran into a problem with the state of California where I'm, I'm suing the, the, the state in, in federal court because they're. You know, because it's california very anti-business and so um i'm i'm stuck here in california and so because my wife loves it and so i'm gonna fight back and try to make california a better place so um uh, but that has you know taken you know about 18 percent of my business
1: this fight and so um i'm hoping to prevail within the giving you know coming months well again that comes back to like you said this is something this long term for you so you're not just going to lay down and even earlier, what you were saying about the efficiencies with you know ten million over ten years, absolutely, that is something that's long term. That is something that's effective. But that that's what you're here for. And as you were saying, the people that are trying to pump these things up, you see what their mentality is. They want to pump it up because they want to be able to exit from what they're acquiring from you in the process. Right. Yeah. I don't. I don't need an exit. I, I
2: like cash flow. It's like I don't really want to sell. I've I mean, I've sold companies um and it's nice it's a nice liquidity event but i you know that was always just to move me into whatever i'm whatever i'm doing next i retired when i was 38 and i went into like deep depression like just because i was like what do i do i'd sold my company and i just was i you know i had stuff i bought an rv and i traveled around the us for a while and i bought another house and I bought a bought a brand new you know p85d tesla you know ludicrous and you know i Everything was great except for the fact that I'm like I have no purpose at all like I just didn't know what to do with myself and that's when I decided to start uh, you know start a new business and just
1: to start it on my own terms. You also had an event that happened where you had the the injury initially that led you to find these efficiencies and you said that you were lucky enough to get hit by that. You also had cancer at one point and it was interesting how all the work that you had done to set yourself up to have these systems is what allowed you to have the ability to really deal with that in a way that was holistic for you.
2: Yeah, yeah, I went in it was it was almost exactly a year ago. I went into pre-nuvo and they had this high definition sort of MRI scan and they test for 500 different conditions. Um, I have zero history of cancer, no symptoms at all. I was actually thinking I can be kind of a high stress person. They do like check for aneurysms, So I'm like, you know, I've heard too many stories about guys in the late forties that are perfectly healthy. And then they just keel over because of an aneurysm. So I'm like more concerned about that kind of stuff. And, uh, and so I went in and did this and my doctor starts calling me. It was like two or three weeks later, frantically. He's like, Hey, they found a huge tumor on your kidney. And so it turned out I had a renal cell carcinoma and it was stage three. It was Wow. Getting into the veins and everything. It was right at the point where it was about to metastasize. And so they went in and did a surgery and they pulled my kidney out and some of the fat around it and all the cancer around it. And, um, and I'm, I'm cancer free now. I got, I got really lucky. And this was, you know, based off of, you know, I, I told you earlier curiosity is what makes me a good entrepreneur. Well, I started leveraging a lot of those same curiosities into my health. And so this was, this scan was one of many things that I did. You know, I was, I had done the constant glucose monitoring. I, I have like a, at my house, I got sauna and cold plunge. I got all kinds of stuff. I'm, I'm constantly experimenting and constantly curious about my body. And so that curiosity saved my life. My doctor told me, he said, you know, had you wait another six months to a year, once the metastasize gets into your spine, it gets into your lungs, like because the location of kidney things are really, really nasty. Um, so I got really lucky. And since then, I've had a lot of people that have reached out to me that didn't get so lucky, you know, that they found it once there was blood in their urine or once they had terrible lower back pain. And, and then it's, it's terminal. And so uh, here I am, I've got one kidney and I feel feel like a million bucks. And uh, so I, I got lucky, but you know, I didn't have to sweat it. You know, like I said, in my talk, you know, I was able to uh, deal with my wife. She was really having a hard time with, you know, what this was. I had to explain this to my kids. And so I didn't have to explain it to my company that does its thing. You know, and so I don't want to worry anybody there. And so after the fact, you know, it's like, okay, everybody, I had cancer and it's gone now. And so we can carry on with our lives. And so it was just a, it's, I feel it's very, a very nice way to have your life structured, you know, especially at this point in my life. You know, I'm, I'm in my late forties. You know, my priorities are much different than when I was younger. And so depending on what your listeners are at and where they're at, they need to figure out what that balance is. You know, I was doing a, a talk in Chicago last week and, you know, I got a lot of pushback about the whole idea of work-life balance. And I said, well, nobody said it has to be a 50-50 fulcrum. As a matter of fact, if you're like 23 years old, and just out of the military, like I was, and like trying to figure it out, you should be like ninety nine percent work. You get like one percent to yourself, right? That's that. That's the balance. And hopefully, over time, maybe you get some work life integration. You move closer towards the sort of the fulcrum point, and that's sort of the part that I've decided. That's sort of where I'm at now. Is right. the things that I do, um, I integrate a lot of work and life, and
1: it all you know folds together very nicely. So when you had cancer. Because I knew that when you were injured the first time, when that was your kind of like moment that made you go into these systems, because you didn't have any other choice with a computer, how was your mentality different? Did it, because you were talking about how when you were 38 and you retired, there was this feeling of identity, not not being sure what that was. Did What did cancer kind of teach you in the process?
2: I think it made me revisit uh, some of the thoughts that I'd had uh, around mortality from you know from my accident you know that was one of the things i really had to, to to wrestle with you know it wasn't just you know there's there's a much larger storage of that accident than what i did in my business because my life before that accident was completely different as well the relationship i was in was not serving me the 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 business wasn't in the right position the friends that i that i was surrounding myself weren't the people that were going to build me up and so i very systematically just changed everything and so i you know it's almost as if i died you know because i before that i had built sort of what i thought was it almost felt like a house of cards and everything kind of came tumbling down and so every year on july 3rd i you know it's my alive day and i celebrate it as such and i use it as a point of reflection to see whether or not i'm honoring myself or who i am or you know who i want to be and um, and i think that because so many years had passed that i probably hadn't had taken the time to do like deep reflection uh and the cancer put me right back in that space that's the base of mortality is like am i serving my family am i serving my business am i serving the people am i where am i giving uh and so i do a lot of things now you know i do i do a lot of volunteer work i uh, i'm on the board of a couple of uh nonprofits. i i work with uh formerly incarcerated men and women to help them you know get into you know to start their own businesses I help veterans I, so and you know so I do a lot of things to to give now and that fulfills me you know it's just part of me just thought about well you know if I if I died of cancer or if I died in that accident I have all this information from you know 20 plus years of entrepreneurship that can serve and help other people but yet I'm just you know
1: using it for myself and that that doesn't feel good so I want to share and that's what we need more of there's so many people now that want to share because they want attention but what they're giving is There's so much information out there. There's so much path. There's so much empty, just hollow information out there that is just the regurgitation of other people. And that's why when you were speaking, I was like, this guy knows what he's talking about. This guy's been there. And then to be able to scale through those things and be able to take those things out, I think the injury helped you. I think the retirement helped you. I think, dare I say, the cancer helped you because it forces us, as you know, with me, it forces you to reevaluate stuff. It's like, what shit is not serving me and why am I so focused on it? Why is this yeah. so important to me? It's really not in the grand scheme of things. And when all that stuff is taken away, we learn, oh, this is valuable. And it also keeps us very honest with, like you said, you, you have a fantastic family and you have great relationships around you. Yet we could do a little more. We could do it better. Mm-hmm. We could be more intentional. We could have more attention to what we're, our intention is, right? Yeah, that's right. I
2: think it's like everyone needs to have some sort of two things. Number one, a mini retirement, because retirement is a lie, you know, as far as wait till you're 65 years old to enjoy your life. Sorry, it's too late. It's game over. And second is like some sort of a, you know, coming to God moment, you know, the the near death experience to, to shake you and wake you up to what this experience really is, is that it could, you know, it could all end tomorrow. And, you know, you kind of have to live every day like that. It's like, are you would you be proud of everything that you've done, you know, or would you look back and think about the things that you could have done? And that's a pretty terrifying thought, you know, to everybody thinks time is, is unlimited and so once you have a near death experience you realize that time is very limited and you start to pay more attention to the time that you're wasting am i am i scrolling social media mindlessly am i just sitting here watching netflix and chilling am i you know am i doing things that are of service to people around me and to myself and to continue pushing forward am I, or am i doing things that are self serving and um, you know self sabotaging uh, and that's where a lot of people live, and so yeah, it just made me be far more intentional. And so, like I said, if I could bring someone to a near-death experience, if there was a way to do that, and maybe go right, get, get get my truck, and maybe I'll go come run you over <laughs> or some of your, some of your listeners. And, this <laughs> is part of the
1: mentorship program. This is definitely. Right.
2: Hey guys, this is really gonna hurt, and you might not even live. But if you do, if you do, you're gonna yeah. crush it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: So, I think that that's why our messages. I think that's why you know, we're cut from a similar cloth, man, it, it takes getting punched in the face to just really make you realize. And here's the thing, like you get punched and then you, it doesn't, it doesn't hurt as bad as you thought it would, but man, it scares you because you're like, oh shit, like I thought that I had this figured out and I don't. And then it unravels into this thing of, man, what else did I believe to be true that is absolutely false? And right. now you have to take this. And now you either take that deep journey of introspection and really look or, you try to push it away and you hope that that never happens again. But man, it's always in the back of your head. That truth is always there and it's undeniable. Yeah, it is. Yeah, this, these, yeah, you got it, man.
2: That's <laughs> uh this, this is the journey that I've been down and I, I hope that my message sort of resonates with people because, um. I, I hate to see someone, you know, waste a perfectly good life. You know, me and my son, we have a lot of these deep conversations because I don't know how he's going to have the experiences that I've had. You know, he's growing up with far more privilege than I did. And, you know, the way that I that I shape him, he's not going to have the same pain. He's not going to have those same experiences. But I'm trying to find ways to instill
1: the same, you know, sort of ethos that I live by. And so it's tough. I think the martial arts are a great thing because there are these micro adversities that you're just slowly introducing him to every day. You're you're in side control. You have somebody that's got knee on your belly. It's like, okay, this is uncomfortable, but it teaches yeah. you to problem solve in real time. It mm-hmm. teaches you to trust the skill set. It tr- teaches you that you're able. You can't. You don't just need to sit there and be the victim and tap out and say that's it. And now you become identified as a victim. And now everything you can't wait to be victimized by it because in that case, that person's not a a victim. They're a volunteer. Yeah, that's right. They're looking for it, and they don't understand how detrimental that is and like you were saying as well i've noticed when we fixate on ourselves oh poor me oh this has happened like you were saying also about like even the housing market and stuff we have to be able to pivot we have to be able to change and often it takes us serving other people or finding other people to bring into this this purpose that we have that allows us to do that and those people literally save us when the chips are down if we've done it correctly. So you build something amazing. You you hired incredible people and you led them well because they were the ones that stepped up literally in your darkest hour. Yeah, that's right. Surround yourself with
2: amazing people. Like I take, I'm very intentional about how I hire. Since then, even more so. I go really over the top to make sure that everyone that I hire is a good cultural fit and that they're going to be, able, you know, I really don't care about what skills you have. I can teach you skills. I care about your character. So I hire people of high character and then train them to do the work that we need to do that's been great. And I do the same thing for, uh, you know, with my kids, I want my kids just to have high character. I don't care if they have straight A's. I don't care if they're the, you know, the actual best jujitsu or best gymnast in the world, but I do care that they, that they work really, really hard at everything that they do and that they're, um they're honest and, you know, they're real men and that they're, you know, they're adding value in the world. You know, there's, there's a lot of people running around the world, you know, with depression and anxiety and everything else. And because they're always looking for ways to to fix their problem with that, like, how can I make my depression, my anxiety feel better? And so some of them go to alcohol, others go to drugs. other Some people go get a massage. They look, it's like a selfish endeavor. When really often the thing that you need to do to, to, to fight those things back is go be of service to others. And so understanding, you know, with my kids, if you're having a hard time, it's okay, like, hey, cool. Well, what can we do to go help somebody else get out of that situation? Because as a result, you helping them will help you to get out of the situation. And so I think that this is, uh, you know, somebody had asked me why I do, I volunteer so much of my time to, to Five Ventures. and It was sort of like, because um, it fulfills a part of, of of me by helping these other people. It helps the me inside when I was sleeping in the back of my car and trying to figure things out, um,
1: giving back to to them makes me feel more whole. Yeah. So. Action cures all, right? If we're sitting here yep. depressed, if we go for a walk, like you said, it changes our entire biochemistry, changes everything. You're getting sun, you're getting movement, you're you're creating these opportunities that now you you're you're taking action as opposed to just sitting there because that physicality of just sitting in one place is literally just a loop that's continuing of lack of, of movement, lack of empowerment, yeah. lack of of change. It's, it's,
2: you know, excess energy in your body, you would think that if you had excess energy in your body that you would feel great. But in fact, the excess energy is what makes you feel terrible. Um, It's what makes you like, you know, fat is excess energy. It's stored energy. And that doesn't make you feel good, does it? So you always got to find a way to exhaust that energy. So that's when you hit the homeostasis. And that's when you're in, you know, that's when you're in a, in a group. Um, and so that's where I where I try to stay that's why I stay active. That's why I always have forward motion in all of my endeavors. I there's no, you know stagnation is not a part of my life.
1: No there's a there'll be plenty of time for us to be stagnant later. now is not the time. Yeah yeah yeah. right exactly exactly <laughs> my man. I, I want to be respectful of your time but some of the people are going to want to understand just a little bit more about your hiring process because you said you were very intentional about what that is and can you give us a little bit more of that and then I'll, I'll let you get on to your other ventures.
2: Sure, yeah. So usually if I want to hire someone, first off I I look where, where are the people that I need? Are they on Upwork or they are they, you know, on do they currently have a job? Figure out where they are and then market to them directly, bring them in, and then I do paid tests. So if, let's say for example if I'm hiring a marketer, uh maybe I get down to my last 10 applicants and I say I'm going to pay you $200 each. And, uh, here's a marketing goal we're trying to accomplish. And I want you to create, uh, you know, let's say a social media campaign, pushing this initiative. You know, I I don't want to waste your time. It says I value your time. And so they'll come back and, you know, maybe five of them are, you know, no good. And so I go, okay, well, you're not the one. And it's not even just the test. It's also about the communication. Like how quickly did they respond? How quickly did they get it back to me? How, how was their communication? You know, so I'm paying attention to a lot of other cues. Um, when I'm having an interview, I'm, I'm talking less about their skills than I'm about their life so, oh, tell, tell me about your family. Tell me about your children. Tell me about your your aspirations. Tell me the, like, and so that's where you really start to get a feel for people. Mm. Uh, and then I'll go through with these tests. Maybe those last five, I'll give another test. I'll, I'll spend a lot of money to hire a good person. You know, we get down to maybe the last two, two or three applicants. Now, maybe I only need one person, but I take these other people and I put them in the queue because now I I know that I've got some more really good ones lined up. And then when I bring these people in too, it's like, you can take really, really good people and put them in terrible systems and they won't thrive. And so I make sure that the systems that I'm putting them in are bulletproof. And so I create what I, was, it's almost like uh like you ever go bowling with your kids and they put those bumpers in the rails. Yes. Like I create those for my staff, right? Because I, I don't want them to go off into the gutter, but I want them to have the freedom and flexibility and like the, all of the wins and everything with a lot, you know, less opportunities of losses. And so they can use their creativity. And so I take the and i put them into really good systems i nurture them and uh and i grow them over time i have very little churn people uh, once they work for me they work for me forever uh and so it's very very rare that i lose someone and because that's another part of growing a really durable business you know i mean when i sold my demolition company i had guys that had worked for me for 15 years um you know i've got i've got people in my drafting company that have been with me for eight years now uh and and most of them have to be honest this is what works you know empowering
1: people that's it. it. It works better for everyone. Like you said, people want to be given responsibility. if They're at a place that they enjoy. They want to prove themselves. They want to do more. Like you said, like you're talking about your son when he was in public school and it's like he's not being stimulated. He's just bored out of his mind. Most people want more than just the paycheck. They want something to be a part of. And clearly mm-hmm. you're building those things.
2: Right. And, and also just like my people that work for me, they know that I have their back. Meaning, like, I've taken such great care in hiring the right people and paid such close attention to their character that I actually coach the position where I'm instead of like the whole McDonald's, uh, the customer's always right, I'm almost on the other end of that. We have such clear descriptions of our services and such incredible people that work. It's very rare that a customer complaint is something that we did it's something that was misunderstood on their end. So they know that I have their back. And so I'll, you know, we have, uh, I mean, I've got like a 99.9% customer satisfaction. I got like 5,000 or 7,000 five-star reviews. And if anybody's not happy, I just give them their money back. I mean, it's like, that's the level of people and processes I have instilled in my business.
1: Yeah. I, I love that. Where can we learn more about you? Where can we buy your book? where can we see you speaking next? What can we do? Sure.
2: Yeah. So, uh, go to Ryan Uh, and you can see kind of a lot of the stuff I'm up to there. Uh, and then also there's, uh, the hustle trap. You can buy that on Amazon or audible. That's kind of everywhere. And, um, Yeah, I'm starting, I'm starting a new new newsletter that goes through weekly and breaks out some of my, the things like what we just talked about, the hiring, some of the processes that I've used within my business. And so I'm just going to put those into the world and hope that other people can benefit from them as well. So
1: it's a free newsletter. So um, that'll be up uh, probably within the next week on my website. Okay. So by the time this comes out, it'll be out there. So go to the website, subscribe to that to learn more about those things and everything you've got going. Ryan, I cannot thank you enough. So good to meet you as a person first, and then as I get to know you, there's just this robust entrepreneur and, and human beneath that. And uh, yeah, likewise,
2: man. I, I, you I mean, your your story is uh, is quite amazing in itself too. And so, well, uh, so. yeah, that's life lessons, man. It's, it's it's rough, but I I was really impressed by by the talk that you gave and the the things that you had to say and what you've been
1: through. Been well, I appreciate incredible. it. And and the great thing is we're both using that as a vehicle to help other people be better. We don't You're have. We don't have time to wait around those of you that think you have time, man, it's, it's approaching passion, you think, and it doesn't have to be like a a life altering event, but it can, it can be this thing where you're saying, okay, you know, I'm 23, I'm thinking about doing this business or I'm thinking about doing this thing, but I'm not sure. And I'm dating this person and I don't know if they're the right fit. Like do the side hustle thing now, attack this other idea now, because if you do get married or if your life changes. That opportunity to do this thing that will give you that financial freedom and that autonomy may disappear. So your yeah, life won't right. end, but the life yeah. that you could have will end. Your, that's your risk saying.
2: profile, the risk profile is going to change every decade. It's going to change more and more to where you just take less and less risk. And so, you know, and those decades, as you know, come faster and faster. And so if you're, you know, if you're 23, you're going to be 33 faster than you think. And if you're 33, you're going to be 43. And so when you approach like, hey, I want to build a lifestyle, you don't take that like, uh, uh, you know, lightly, like it's this 10 years is going to go by far faster. So you need to it with a sense of urgency. And I think a lot of people miss out on that is that they think that life is infinite and it is It is not i can't believe that i'm 47 years old i don't know what happened to the last like 25 years it's just it's insane right of since getting out of the military yeah um but i've always had forward motion and if even if that's just small things of forward motion you know just reading every morning for 15 minutes is like you know it'd be amazing what these compounding effects are going on a two-mile walk every morning you'd be amazed like these things that you do on a consistent basis where you just force yourself are the things that'll make you, whether it's meditation or a morning cold plunge or a morning walk or reading a book or going to the gym or whatever it is, these things compound. And so that's the one thing that you know for me is probably the most important is just compounding these things in my life uh, so that I don't have to do the big heavy lift. I don't want to have to go lose 50 pounds. I don't want to have to like, you know, do do a, like learn an entire subject area and spend, you know, to understand marketing that's where I have to like, you know, read hundreds of hours. Like I don't don't want to cram. I just want to slowly over time, build my knowledge and my strength. And
1: that's works for me. Yeah. And you're focusing on what you want. That's where your best work comes from. And real quick, tell us about what your, what your day docket looks like so that people can understand what you're doing and how you're able to allocate your time.
2: Sure. Yeah. I mean, I usually wake up pretty early. I'm up, uh, I don't know, five, sometimes a little earlier. Uh, and then I don't have a strict morning routine, but I have a uh, got a hot tub. Sometimes I'll sit out there and have a cup of coffee, look at stars. Uh, I've got a sauna. Sometimes I'll sit in my sauna for 30 minutes. I've got a cold plunge. It's at 39 degrees. I'll sit in there for a few minutes sometimes. um and I go on a walk. That's my that is pretty consistent. So I do a two-mile walk every morning. Uh, I don't listen to my headphones. I just do it mm-hmm. with my own mind. It kind of sets me up for the day. Uh, and then by eight o'clock, I come to the office. I bank off about an hour for each of my projects. So I'll go, you know, you know I've got three businesses I'm running, which is uh, you know, two in the construction technology space, one is an investment company. And so I spend an hour on each of those, and then you know maybe another hour on my musings. So I've got you know studying AI, studying tools, you know, jumping on a podcast like yours, whatever it is. Um, and so uh, so that's kind of my day. And then I go home as soon as I feel like it. I usually lose my my motivation, inspiration by about noon or one. And so I go home and then uh, you know shuttle kids around to to gymnastics or to their sports or whatever it is. Hang out with my wife uh, and then wrap up the day another another walk with the whole family. And that's Love it. That's my day, and then I'm in bed by like eight thirty.
1: <laughs> and then, every, like you said, the weekends are similar, but it's it's still exactly what you want. You're living life on yeah. your own terms, and that's what this is all about. This is what freedom looks like.
2: That's right. Yeah, and I feel I feel like I have freedom. I very lowly leveraged. I you know bought a house sixty percent down. I buy all my cars for cash. I you know got plenty of money in the bank. It's like I don't stress. It. Even if my business were to disappear tomorrow, it doesn't matter. I've, you know, I've, I live a very comfortable life and I don't want, you know, I, I understand a lot of people want to have a giant house and, a, you know, the, this huge lifestyle. And, um, but you know, when, when shit hits the fan, uh, those are the first ones to, to fade away. And so it's not how I want to live. It's too stressful for me.
1: Yeah. It's un, it's unnecessary stress. And when I interviewed Steve Sims, he made a great comment. He said, if all of his money disappeared tomorrow by doing the right thing, he's created a network around him that he could go to that network and earn his way back to whatever he needed to get. And so with you, you've created this incredible network around you of people that actually know that you care about them, that know what you're about, that know that you're not full of shit. And that's what would make them help you get back to where you want to go. Or again, that would give you the freedom and perspective change that would probably make you go even higher in another direction if that's what you said. Yeah, higher. and I'm
2: also I'm also humble, man. I have no problem grabbing a pickaxe and a shovel again and going back to work. Yeah, I yeah. no shame. Yeah, I I'm not afraid of work, so I
1: I'm not afraid of starting from zero. Yeah, it's a it's an opportunity, if nothing else. Yeah, I yeah. love it. Thank you For so sure. much, yeah. everybody. Go subscribe. Everybody, go listen to this interview more than once. A lot of people think they hear something once and it's like, oh yeah, I heard that. Go back, take some notes. He dropped a lot of gold here and uh, frankly, it was uh, it was hard earned. So if he can take some of this advice that he's taken a long time to to learn the hard way, why would you not do that? Why would you not apply this idea of what systems am I continually tripping over? What am I seeing myself repeating this unnecessarily all the time? And if I could take a little bit more time right now to step away from this six months from now, what would that allow me to do? How would that free me up? What else would I do with that time, that bandwidth, that mentality?
2: 100 percent. Great. That's that's it. You were
1: listening. <laughs> yeah, I paid attention for sure. Thank you so much. I uh, look forward to seeing you sometime wherever you're speaking, or if I'm in California, I'll uh, I'll try to hit you up, and uh, maybe we can go get a steak or something. Yeah, you better. All right, man. Good to see you. <laughs> Talk to you soon. Thanks again. All right. okay,
0: bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Octa Nonverba.